0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, April the 6th, 2023. This much is known. There's a crisis of democracy in the West generally, in the United States and Europe. The issue is what kind of crisis? Seems as if one view is that the crisis is from below. Yesterday, we did a show with Rajiv Vinakota from um, a civic group in the United States, believing that the best way to repair democracy in America was to strengthen civic identity through education and other kinds of uh, initiatives from below. And then there's another view. The crisis of democracy comes from above. My guest today on the show, Larry Bartels, is one of the most distinguished historians and thinkers on the crisis of democracy. He has a new book out, Democracy Erodes From the Top, Leaders, Citizens and the Challenges of Populism in Europe. Uh, Larry is joining us. Larry, welcome to Keen On. Hi, Andrew. We're not seeing you, Larry, because um, we have some technological glitches, but we can hear you well. Uh, Your thesis um, lets the voter off the hook, or is that the wrong way of thinking about today's crisis of democracy?
1: Well, I wouldn't say it lets the voter off the hook. Um, I've written a lot about public opinion and have made a lot of pessimistic statements about the limitations of public opinion. But I think the way to think about this is that citizens are not really the moving force in democratic politics. Political leaders are. And so thinking about the crisis of democratic systems from the point of view of citizens is kind of misleading. It's sort of focusing on the wrong part of the overall system. It's not that they're committed Democrats and will do whatever they can to protect democracy. They're often pretty passive in their attitudes toward democracy and their democratic behavior. But the point is that their actions are usually not decisive. The actions that are usually decisive are of the people who wield real political power.
0: Larry, throughout the history of democracy, there have always been odd characters, Timpot dictators, mounty banks, racists, troublemakers, uh rabble rousers who run for office, and they're rarely elected for office. This new round of Donald Trumps, uh, Orban in Hungary, uh, Maloney in Italy seems different. Isn't then the responsibility with the voters? They're voting for these people. There have always been. Men like Trump running for office, they've never been elected in the past. How would you respond to that observation, which seems pretty obvious, doesn't require a genius to make it?
1: Well, I mean, we've had have a lot of shady characters elected in various times and places, so I don't think that part is new. I think there has been a wider variety of political offerings that have allowed voters to fall into these traps in Contemporary politics. But I think you have to take every case one by one. Uh, If you think about Trump, for example, I think Trump got elected mostly because he was the Republican nominee. And then if you ask yourself, how did he become the Republican nominee? Well, it was because we have this primary process that interprets the needs of democracy as ordinary citizens picking the candidates. I don't think uh, more sensible system of selecting presidential candidates would have come up with Trump in the first place, and so the limitations of voters would not have been as crucial in those circumstances. In Orban's case, if you look at the survey data from the time before he was elected, it doesn't seem as though voters in Hungary were voting for authoritarianism or voting for a backsliding or curtailing of their democracy. They were voting against a discredited incumbent party and voting for what looked at the time like a pretty conventional conservative alternative. And It was only after the election that Orban took advantage of circumstances to crack down on the judiciary and on independent journalists and to roll back some of the protections and norms of what had been uh, a more democratic culture.
0: Is there a crisis of elites, Larry? You talk about Orban. He clearly isn't playing by the rules. Another character who comes up in your book, uh, especially in the European context, is Boris Johnson, a man who is sometimes very slippery with the truth. Um, is the problem with these elites that they've lost any moral grounding, any moral anchor, that they'll tell the, v- the voters anything to be elected and reelected?
1: Well, that's always true to a greater or lesser degree in different times and places. If you think about American politics through the 20th century, for example, you can think about all kinds of political machines in the big cities of America that were run by bosses who entrenched themselves in power in a variety of different ways, sometimes through fiddling with institutional rules, sometimes through intimidation um so i think that's something that politicians are often tempted to do uh the extent to which they can get away with it depends in part on the institutions and the political culture i think the extent to which they are willing to try also depends to some extent on political culture but it's also pretty universal many of those urban machines in the u.s were eventually toppled by so-called reformers who, once they were in power, then fiddled with the rules in different ways in order to try and entrench themselves in power, something that politicians are often going to try and do, regardless of the details of the system.
0: So, Larry, you don't sound particularly troubled. You don't sound as if what's happening today in Europe or the United States is that different from from previous episodes, previous crises in democracy? Is there anything different about the crisis? And I use that word carefully. Maybe you don't even believe that it's a right word. Is there anything unusual, different about this situation of democracy in the 2020s?
1: Well, I want to say that if it is a crisis, it's the sort of crisis that we've observed often in the past. You can find people writing about crises of democracy in all kinds of different times and places, and they're focusing on different aspects of the system and worried about different vulnerabilities. But I think democracies often have significant vulnerabilities. Um, I write a lot about populism, and in Europe especially, there's a sense that populist sentiment has swept over the continent and that the heart of these problems is that there are a lot of people now who are willing to support right-wing populist characters of various kinds. Um, It turns out, if you look at the survey data, that the overall level of populist sentiment in Europe really hasn't changed at all over the last couple of decades. Uh, There's a big reservoir of people out there who are willing to support various kinds of um, troubling candidates, uh, troubling in, one way or another with respect to their attachment to democratic norms and their political preferences. Uh, But the extent to which they actually do that, the extent to which citizens actually support those guys depends more on accidents of the particular political context than it does on any big shifts in public opinion.
0: Have you changed your mind, Larry, over the last 10 or 15 years? You had a book out, Unequal Democracy, which was very well reviewed, very influential, suggesting that the the architecture of 21st century capitalism was creating the kind of inequality which was changing politics and driving populism. Are you suggesting that uh, that isn't such a big deal and that populism uh, is uh it's an inflammatory term but in reality nothing much has changed even though there is more and more inequality
1: i think inequality has a lot of bad political and social consequences i don't think populism is one of them particularly and in fact a lot of what i wrote about in that book was the puzzling absence of a direct political response to the shifts in the economic system that we'd seen over time. A lot of the story is about the failure of the American political system to address the kinds of economic problems that have cropped up. And I think that's a pretty consistent pattern through time.
0: But Thomas Frank, of course, wrote his famous book about people in Kansas voting, working class people in Kansas voting against their own interests. Didn't this also happen in the United Kingdom when it came to Brexit? The wealthy in London were Uh, sympathetic to uh, to, to staying in the EU while the working classes in the provinces chose to leave, and they're the ones who have been most damaged by this?
1: Well, I think that's probably true. The main lesson that I draw from that experience is that it was a failure of political leadership on the part of the prime minister to bungle his way into offering the referendum uh, rather than making a decision to change the parameters of the relationship between the UK and the European Union, but not to offer citizens the opportunity to make that mistake.
0: We had Moises Naim on the show recently, an old friend of mine. He, I'm sure you're very familiar with his work, two books in particular, uh, The End of Power and The Revenge of Power. He's argued that and I'm not sure whether he's in your camp or not, but he, he's argued that these new authoritarians will do everything they can to hang on to power. He uses the Latin American model and suggests that the, the Orbans and the Trumps and the Modas of the world uh, are breaking the rules. Are you in Naeem's camp when it comes to the way in which uh, there's been this revenge of power by these new elites, these people in power?
1: I guess I think what happened is that some of the norms of democracy that politicians felt themselves bound by have eroded over time, uh, in part because particular political figures have pushed the boundaries and found that there was less of a political cost to violating norms of democracy than they had imagined. If you think about Trump, for example, refusing to release his tax returns. Previous presidential candidates in the U.S. probably might have been tempted to do that, but imagine that there would be a pushback if they did. I think that calculation was probably wrong, and Trump demonstrated that it was wrong. And so now, unless there's some change in the formal requirements, probably candidates will decide whether or not to release their tax returns based on their own whims, rather than on the idea that there will be some big political pushback if they don't.
0: There's a new generation of women uh, knocking on the door of power in Europe, Marine Le Pen, of course, and Giorgio Meloni, who's already the Italian prime minister. How do they fit into your narrative? Are they examples of leaders who are eroding democracy from the top, or might they be the solution to the crisis of public life in Europe these days?
1: Well, La has never actually held actual power. So it's hard to know what she'll do if she has the chance. Maloney has actually been, I think, surprisingly conventional in her governing posture so far. Um, whether that will continue or not is unclear. But Italy is a good example, I think, of a place where there's been substantial right-wing populist sentiment for a long time. She came to power mostly because of the complex accidents of the multi-party system in Italy rather than because there was any big shift in public opinion.
0: Hasn't politics, though, Larry, perhaps, in concert with the Internet, become a kind of kabuki game, uh, theater, uh, perhaps social media-style theater? Uh, Donald Trump's very good at this. Uh, The Five Star Movement in Italy was very good with this and that these politicians put on an authoritarian spectacle, but they're not really that authoritarian. They don't really put people in jail. They certainly don't shoot them. So is this all a, a, a bit of a spectacle?
1: Well, I think one thing that's important to bear in mind is that there isn't any single dichotomous distinction between democracies and autocracies. There's a very complicated set of dimensions on which democracies can perform better or worse. And at any given time, there are likely to be aspects in which a particular political system is more democratic and some in which it's less democratic. Because it's so complicated, one of the things we see is that critics of particular political leaders often will fasten on aspects of democracy that are changing in some salient way, and where the they can make the incumbent look bad. So there's been a lot of complaints about Republican efforts to curtail access to the voting booth in the US. I think that's reprehensible. I think it's a clear violation of democratic norms. On the other hand, I don't think it's hugely consequential in terms of how our politics works. There are probably lots of other aspects of democracy that are much more important in terms of the day-to-day working of the system, but that we don't focus on as much because there isn't any political benefit to be had by the people who want to do the complaining.
0: Is this erosion, is it to some extent ideological? It seems as if it comes from the right, and it's progressives who, ironically, have become the defenders of the status quo of institutions of the legal system. So it's the Trumps, the Le Pen's, the Maloneys, the Orbans who were trying to undermine the system in the language of the people, perhaps to pursue their own self-interest. And it's the old progressive elites, the new people in New York and San Francisco and London and Paris who are defending the old order. Does, does that make sense? And is there something perhaps troubling, troublingly ironic about that in the sense that it's the conservatives who are the, the, the disruptors and the so-called progressives who are increasingly the conservatives?
1: Well, populism is a style of campaigning and sometimes a style of governing that can be harnessed to a variety of different ideologies. Um, we talk about a family resemblance among the various right-wing populists around the world. If you look in detail at what they're doing, you actually see sometimes some pretty significant differences among them. But I think insofar as there is a commonality, it probably reflects the fact that conservatism is in some sense, at least cultural and social conservatism is on the back foot in a lot of societies. Nowadays, there's a kind of shift in social norms in a progressive direction. And in a lot of places, people who are attached to traditional values feel like those values are disappearing and feel uh, threatened in a way that people on the left don't at the moment.
0: What about the role of nationalism? Um, Perhaps it's being abused by leaders like Orban and Johnson, Maloney, but they are using it as a a, a hammer against what they term globalization. What's the role of of identity and identity politics in the erosion of democracy from the top, in your view?
1: I think identity is almost always the most important single consideration for ordinary people in thinking about their political lives and the political choices that they face. And therefore, it's a tool for politicians to use in order to win votes and to entrench themselves in power. If you think about Orban, for example, um, people in Hungary faced a choice between, on one hand, supporting democratic values and opposing Orban because he was whittling down the checks and balances in the political system in ways that might be frightening or harmful. On the other hand, he was validating their national identities. He was producing a lot of prosperity. If you look at survey data on Hungarians' views about not only the economy, but the provision of government services, their trust in political leaders, and Ironically, even their satisfaction with the way democracy was working, they all increased substantially over Orban's time in power. Um, And I think that's because these people were trading off whatever unhappiness or unease they might have felt about the backsliding with respect to democratic norms and institutions against the quality of their day to day lives and their deeply held values and. Um, deciding that the latter were more important to them than the former.
0: Is there a model, an alternative model to Western representative democracy being polished from the East, from Moscow or Beijing by Putin and Xi Jinping?
1: Not one that I think is particularly relevant to how these systems operate. I would say that none of the countries that we've been talking about are ones where elections are going to stop happening. Uh, they'll be free and fair to varying degrees. Orban you know, has worked hard to entrench himself in power, and the last couple of elections certainly have not been entirely free and fair, but there is scope for opposition in Hungary, and eventually he will get booted out of office and replaced by other politicians. So I think the spectrum that we're talking about here is between electoral systems that are more or less democratic rather than something that's uh, completely and avowedly an undemocratic system.
0: Eventually, Larry, can often be a long time. Moises Naim points to Venezuela and other Latin American systems as the model to scare people with. Um, he certainly doesn't argue that that it represents any kind of return to fascism. Madeleine Albright argued that um, she, she believes that she did believe she's no longer around, that we are teetering on the verge of a return to fascism. People like um, Anne uh, Applebaum seem to suggest that. Where, If you want to scare people with the future, what do you point to? Do you point to Venezuela? Do you point to Nazi Germany, to Mussolini's Italy?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's complex here is that democracy is so many different things and means different things to different people. And so the threat is not that some society will self-consciously decide to be something other than a democracy, but that it will redefine democracy in some way that's very different from the way we think about it. Um, I think as you know, people who are committed to democracy, we're committed to the label, and often begin to disagree pretty quickly when we think about what goes into that label or what's going on under the hood. If you look at surveys in Germany and Spain, for example, you ask people, what does democracy mean or what does it entail? They talk about things like the government providing unemployment benefits. They don't talk as much about things like, you know, rights for minorities Uh, If you look at Israel now, uh, the government is trying to reduce the power of the Supreme Court, but they're arguing that that's a democratic move because the Supreme Court is an undemocratic institution in that political context. So I think democracy is, as much as anything, a kind of label that people use to bash each other over the head politically by saying, I'm democratic and you're
0: not. Larry, is it possible to have a democracy in a country like Israel, leaving aside the question of the Palestinians, but where you have two groups of people, two worlds that share no ontological truth the liberal progressives and the religious Israelis? Can you have democracy where people have absolutely nothing in common?
1: Well, if they actually had absolutely nothing in common, I think that probably would make it impossible. But I think all societies are riven to varying degrees by those kinds of disagreements, not only about values, but also about the kinds of basic perspectives that make people disagree about what we sometimes pretend are objective facts.
0: But what happens when people let's use the Israeli example, of course, what these people have in common is that they're both quote unquote Jewish, although it means very different things to the two communities. But what happens when they wake up to the fact that that actually doesn't mean anything? Then one.
1: Well, we have a lot of instances in which democracy hasn't succeeded, and there are often places where those kinds of deep divisions make it impossible for people to interact with each other through peaceful democratic means. I mean, democracy is always a kind of bargain where people are forswearing, or at least uh, temporarily forswearing violence and other kinds of political action to pursue their values. And at some point, if their values are sufficiently important to them, they're going to put aside democracy or be willing to live with violations of democratic norms in order to pursue those deeply held values. Uh, but for ordinary people, the values don't go very deep. I mean, There are studies that offer people choices between political candidates who have different positions and take different kinds of uh, campaign appeals and are described in these hypothetical surveys as also supporting one or another kind of anti-democratic action, whether it's cracking down on opposition journalists or fiddling with the election laws or something. And if you offer people those trade-offs, there are very few who are willing to support a candidate whose positions and values they disagree with because that candidate supports democratic norms. They're much more likely to support somebody whose values they endorse and, if necessary, uh, wish away or redefine the norms of democracy in order to remove the contradiction between their basic political preferences and their procedural values.
0: Larry, you said that for ordinary people, I think I'm quoting you, their values don't go very deep. Are you suggesting that for not ordinary people, for elites, their values go deeper? Are we all in the same boat, elites or otherwise, that ultimately uh, our interests trump our values?
1: Well, I think we're all in the same boat to differing degrees. But one of the things that has changed in the U.S. and in Europe as well, I think, is that there had been in the post-World War II era a period of elite consensus in which adherence to democratic norms was probably more widespread than it has been at other times and places. There are some famous studies by US political scientists comparing the allegiance to democratic values of political elites and ordinary citizens and finding shallow adherence and a good deal of abandonment of democratic norms on the part of citizens when they come in conflict with their political values, but more adherence to the norms among elites, regardless of their party or ideology. And I think that's something that's probably changed over time, in part because the political systems of many of these countries have opened up in a way that's made it easier for people with extreme views to become active politically and become politically influential. Donald Trump is not somebody who would have been a presidential candidate in the United States of the 1950s, uh, but the system has been opened up in a way that makes that possible.
0: Well, the culture as well. Larry, you speak like a political scientist, which of course is what you are, but you have values yourself, I'm assuming. You like democracy, And you're not amused or happy with the fact that it is eroding from the top. So what are we going to do about it? It, Does this result, do we need to reform institutions, electoral systems? Do people like Boris Johnson need a a more moral education? I don't suppose Donald Trump uh, could be educated one way or the other. Maybe Boris could be.
1: I'm not optimistic about reforming institutions to make this danger go away. You can look at particular instances in which institutional flukes contributed to the opportunities for political leaders to erode democracy. In Hungary, uh, Orban's party was elected with 53% of the vote. Given the way the electoral system worked, that gave them exactly two thirds of the seats in the National Assembly. And because of the way the party was organized so hierarchically, great deal of party unity. That two-third majority was just sufficient for them to alter the constitution and revise these institutions in a way that I think was damaging. But that was a kind of accidental feature of the system. I think the morality of the leaders and their political socialization is probably a more important factor. Unfortunately, it's not one that we have good levers over. I can't tell you how to change the political culture in a way that will produce leaders who are more attached to democratic norms than to the political values that they're espousing or to their own political power.